Birdcage Walk, written by Arnold Steck. The Guards Museum is located on Birdcage Walk in St James's Park, which was given its name because back in the day, King James I set up the royal menageries there, and King Charles I added an aviary to it, hence Birdcage Walk. My name is Andrew Wallace, and I have the honour and privilege of being the director of the Guards Museum, and I've been here since 2005. The museum dedicated to the history of the five regiments of the Sovereign's Foot Guards. I came to take up this role after a 30-year career in investment banking. I hadn't realised quite how much I hated investment banking until I stopped doing it, only to discover there's a big wide world out there full of interesting things to do. So, who am I? It may be easier to say who I am not. Am I a guardsman? No. Am I a former guardsman? No. Concurrent with my banking career, I was also a volunteer soldier, and my regiment was the Honourable Artillery Company, one of the oldest regiments in the British Army, and the senior regiment of the Territorial or Volunteer Army. Am I a professional museum curator? No. As you've already heard, my career was in banking. So how did I end up being the director of this most wonderful establishment. I've been mad keen on the guards since I was a child, and my late father and my older brother would frequently bring me up to London to see the ceremony of changing the guard on a Saturday, or better still, to watch the ceremony of trooping the colour on Horse Guards Parade. To see about 120 guardsmen on parade for the daily guard-mounting ceremony was great, but to see 1,500 guardsmen on duty for Trooping the Colour was just fantastic. And in the early 1960s, when there was still a minimum height restriction, these tall, lean men in their scarlet tunics, bearskin caps and gleaming boots seemed like giants to a tiny schoolboy. On these trips, we would often go to the Guards Museum, which in those days was located in the East Guardroom of Wellington Barracks, near the Guards Chapel. To a lad consumed by all things guards, it was a veritable treasure trove of interesting things. Imagine, 40 years later, being appointed curator and then director of this fantastic museum. I often tell people I've died and gone to heaven, as I'm allowed to play in the toy box all day. Why have I decided to record a podcast? Well, this is intended to act as an outreach to all those people who cannot make the journey to visit us in person or for those people who just want to know a little bit more about these outstanding regiments. This is episode one, and you are very, very welcome. You join us in difficult times. This is being recorded at the start of the coronavirus outbreak in the UK. We have watched with growing concern the spread of the virus from Wuhan in China, through Europe, and on across the globe. The Prime Minister and the government have reluctantly ordered the closure of all non-essential services and forbidden the public to gather together. These sad but sensible measures to limit the spread of the virus. As much as we love the museum, and believe me we do, we cannot class it as an essential service, so we are closed until further notice. This closure has effectively cut off our three main visitor income streams, namely 
visitor footfall revenue, corporate entertainment, and our VIP exclusive guided tours. So we face uncertain times and we are forced to be more creative in how we tell our story to the wider world. I had been contemplating doing a podcast for some time, but these unprecedented circumstances have acted as the catalyst to make me get on and create this programme. Dear listener, I have to warn you that I am something of a Luddite in that technology is still a mystery to me and only one up from voodoo and witch doctory. Still, needs must when the devil drives, so here we go. Good luck, everyone. Let's start with who are the guards? I hear you say, surely everyone knows who the guards are. Well, maybe not. So for those who don't know, these are the five regiments of foot guards who have the signal honour of protecting the sovereign and the royal palaces, a duty they have had since 1660, when King Charles II was put back onto the throne of England, following a period when we had Oliver Cromwell and his parliamentarian cronies in charge. The regiments are the Grenadier Guards, the Coldstream Guards, the Scots Guards, the Irish Guards and the Welsh Guards. Together with the two regiments of cavalry, the Lifeguards and the Blues and Royals, they make up what is called the Household Division. For these guardsmen are her personal troops and the bond between them and their sovereign is incredibly strong and one for which they are willing to die. For ceremonial parades, they wear the iconic scarlet tunic and the world-famous bearskin cap. However, most of the time, these soldiers are to be found in combat clothing, either training for or actually being deployed on active service around the globe. Bearskins, bayonets and bravery. Two faces of the same coin. Superb ceremonial skills, but also outstanding fighting skills too. The current collection has been gleaned from a number of sources. In the 1960s, there was a small museum in what used to be the Guards Training Depot in Purbright in Surrey. When it closed down, most of the exhibits were, shall we say, liberated by unscrupulous individuals. However, my predecessor managed to ring-fence what was left and transport the artefacts to London. As I have already mentioned, there was also a small museum in Wellington Barracks. However, this was also closed in the early 1980s when the barracks was completely redeveloped and, once again, some looting was carried out while the collection was being boxed for storage. And so we come to the creation of the museum as we see it today. A committee was formed in the late 70s to drive this project and a more formal approach was taken to its creation and governance. Money was raised, space allocated in the newly designed barracks, display cabinets built and more artefacts gathered. And on the 19th of February 1988, the museum was officially opened by Her Majesty the Queen in her capacity as Colonel-in-Chief of the five regiments of foot guards. Needless to say, it was a red-letter day for the museum and staff. However, the next day the museum closed its doors again, as no one had thought to budget for the running costs, so it remained closed for a further three months while more money was secured to pay the staff. Much of the original collection was begged, borrowed, and, I suspect, in a few cases, liberated from a variety of sources and then lovingly assembled and displayed by my predecessor, David Horn. David was a lifelong grenadier and also a proud member of the Honourable Artillery Company, 
where he not only served as a regimental sergeant major, but also went on to command the Lord Mayor of London's ceremonial bodyguard, the Company of Pikemen and Musketeers. David was passionate about the museum and did wonderful work setting it up. By his own admission, David hadn't a commercial bone in his body, so when he came to retire, the board was looking for someone with a more commercial background to carry the torch for a while. This coincided with me tiring of the banking life. By this stage, I was a global director of Deutsche Bank in their corporate real estate business, spending half my life living out of a suitcase. Therefore, I stepped away from the bank and bought a small farm in Brittany, where I took out 30 years of frustration by chopping down trees and rotivating fields. Before I departed British shores, I went to see David in the museum and said, let me repay 25 years of friendship by making a documentary about the museum. He said, you must be barking mad. Why would you want to do that? I replied, going round the museum is great, but going round the museum with you is magical because you know all the stories behind the exhibits. He said, can you even make documentaries? I said, I've no idea. Let's find out. Long story short, with the help of my friend Gary Oten, who ran a media company in the next village to where I lived, I wrote and directed a feature-length documentary entitled The Guards Museum, A Private Viewing. It was a monster, one hour and 45 minutes in length, and full of incredible stories about the artefacts and the individuals who formed the 370 years of history of the Guards regiments. Although I admit it was a bit too long, I can assure you we left as much again on the cushing room floor. Such is the breadth and depth of their history. In making the documentary, I got to know the museum board quite well. The deal I struck with them was simple. I would use my own money to make the film, but they would have the ultimate editorial veto. If they didn't like the end product, I said it would go in the bin. Needless to say, I made damn sure they would like it. When David was forced to retire through longevity, he was by this stage six years beyond his sell-by date, I was written to by Brigadier Kim Ross, the chairman of the board, to ask if I would throw my hat in the ring to be the next curator. My initial response was, I'm far too short. Surely you need a tall guardsman to do this job. Brigadier Kim replied, we're struggling money-wise so the last thing we need at the moment is another guardsman. We need someone with a bit more business acumen, and having gotten to know you, we would like it to be you. So I sat there in my farmhouse in Brittany and pondered the question, would I like to run the museum, which I had adored since I was six years of age, which represented the five regiments of foot guards, which I had admired since I could walk, a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace, wherein resides my sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, whom I have had the honour of serving since my 17th birthday, taking over from one of my best friends and someone who had mentored me as a young soldier in my regiment. Hmm, let me think. It was a no-brainer. In short order, the farm was sold and I moved back to the UK and started the year-long handover, working alongside my chum David. David was kind enough to say that year was the best and funniest of his working life. 
we got into some real scrapes in our efforts to be innovative. However, neither of us were arrested, though we did spend a lot of time just out of sight, corpsed with silent laughter at some of our early attempts at corporate entertainment, where we managed to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat on several occasions. After a wonderful year together, in 2006, David stepped ashore and pushed me away from the harbour wall, and that was it. I was captain of the ship and in charge. I want to talk a little bit about the aims and ideals of the museum. Why do we have a museum at all? The establishing deed of trust, which was drawn up in the late 1970s, set out the aims of the museum as follows. 1 to educate young guardsmen in their heritage. Two, to preserve military heritage. Three, to tell the story of the guards. And four, to be a safe repository for historical artifacts of the five regiments. These are fine aims, and they are as current today as they were 40 odd years ago. And yes, we are still adhering to these aims on a daily basis here at the museum but I feel more inspired by the basic ideal that we should be protecting all regimental museums. These institutions, of which the Guards Museum is but one, act as living memorials to the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have served, and in many cases died, in defence of the realm, and they contain the DNA of the British Army. The rights and wrongs of colonialism can be dealt with elsewhere, but no one was crying imperialism when tiny little Britain stood alone against the might of the German totalitarian onslaught. These museums capture what happened in Britain's darkest hours. They tell the stories of the corps and regiments which faced down the enemy and protected freedom across the globe. Those who see these museums as purely commercial ventures are, in my humble opinion, nothing short of moronic in their outlook. Abandoning these museums is an act of unbelievable national ingratitude. It is tantamount to saying, OK guys, thanks for protecting us, thanks for dying for our freedom, we're done with you and you can go away now please. If China decided to break up the terracotta warriors, if the French decided to close down the Musée de l'Armée at Les Invalides in Paris, or if the British Admiralty broke up HMS Victory for firewood, there will be an international outcry. Once these precious links with our past are gone, no amount of money will get them back. Why, therefore, do we feel it okay to let these wonderful little museums close? We in the Guards Museum are luckier than most of the smaller county regimental museums in that we have the advantage of being able to turn a coin purely based on our location. Many of the rural museums do not have that ability. Does that make them any less valuable to the national memory? Of course not. I'll get off my soapbox now. This is why the ideal of protecting the DNA of our military heritage is so vitally important, and that's why my wonderful team here are so dedicated to keeping this museum going. The museum is located near Buckingham Palace. It is sandwiched in between the Guards Chapel and Wellington Barracks, opposite the beautiful St James's Park, which doesn't sound too bad, does it? Until you discover the museum is actually located underground. Needless to say, there are pluses and minuses to having a subterranean abode. Some of the pros are 
good security, very even lighting for the galleries, as we have no fluctuations of variable daylight to deal with, no infestations to destroy the artefacts. However, some of the cons are, we're prone to damp and to flooding, no visible high street presence, hard to extend, Wi-Fi is a nightmare, and disabled access is a bit of an issue too. That said, we are based in the heart of Royal London. We are adjacent to where the iconic ceremony of changing the guards starts and finishes. We are near the fabulous Guards Chapel, and we look on to a Grade 1 listed Royal Park that dates back to the time of King James I. So, all in all, not too shabby. Let me tell you a little bit about our brilliant team here. When I used to work in banking, I used to figuratively beat my staff with a stick to make them work. Here at the museum, I have to beat these wonderful guys with a stick to make them go home. They are an incredibly dedicated, if slightly mad, bunch of people. There is an old saying that goes, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. We spend our days here knitting with thin air to create low-cost solutions to keep the show going. Another saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. While I cannot tell you how many times these innovative guys have produced seemingly impossible solutions out of thin air with very limited resources. Not quite on the scale of the NASA experts designing an air pump from odds and ends on Apollo 13, but pretty damn close. The other thing I adore about these guys is their willingness to roll up their sleeves and do things that really shouldn't be in their job descriptions. From cooking and cleaning, to plumbing, plastering, painting, tiling, carpentry, ceramic repairs, photography, printing, drain clearance, and a whole host of other things that most people these days would look at and say, not my job. In fairness, I never asked them to do any tasks I wouldn't do myself. In this museum, everyone does everything. There are no ivory towers here. We all have dirty hands. So let's look at the people. We have our fantastic volunteers who run front of house for us. These guys come from the Royal Hospital in Chelsea. Yes, the world-famous Chelsea pensioners. These old soldiers in their long scarlet coats come from the hospital every day to run our reception desk. Many, if not most of them, are in their 80s. They love to feel useful and the public love to chat with them. Our visitor comments book is filled with praise for the way these brave old men look after our guests. Their presence frees up the permanent staff to do urgent tasks around the museum and to generate much needed revenue to keep our doors open to the public. The in-pensioners are famous for their storytelling, but their ability to bend history out of any recognisable shape is legendary. I occasionally wince as I hear another historic tale being hammered into a different shape in order to get in a joke punchline. That said, long may it continue. Gentlemen, we love you. We have other gentlemen who work alongside the in-pensioners, other old soldiers who are in their 80s, who have been volunteering with us for more than 20 years, all ex-servicemen, all incredibly smart, and all making a valuable contribution to our continued existence. Well done, guys. Then we have Steve Richards, who does all our tailoring and uniform repairs. Steve was a warrant officer in the Coldstream Guards. 
He was the master tailor of the 2nd Battalion of that regiment, and his skill with a needle and cotton is outstanding. He runs a medal-mounting business for us, and his elephantine knowledge of correct form when it comes to guards' uniforms, honours and decorations is profound. He is a walking reference manual. Then we have Gary Gibbs, who is our curator emeritus. Until recently, Gary was the main curator and the man responsible for the care of the collection. Gary came to us from the police force. However, following a career in the print industry, Gary ran a magazine called The Regiment, which was a marvellous deep dive into the uniforms and the history of famous British and international regiments. He travelled far and wide and took over half a million detailed photographs of uniforms, old and new. Having met him and having rapidly recognised his potential value to us, I asked him to set up a Society of Friends of the Guards Museum and then, after a short period, to join our permanent staff. This quiet and unassuming man is another walking reference book and he frequently upends so-called experts by pointing out mistakes they have made in their descriptions of items up for auction and he is highly skilled at being able to spot a fake or a forgery at a hundred paces. A very useful skill. Gary keeps telling me he's going to retire but I'll believe it when it happens. He has stepped sideways to allow younger blood to come in but his enthusiasm for the subject matter keeps him in post and thirsty for more knowledge. I certainly couldn't have survived over the past 15 years without his steady and calming presence beside me. Can you believe it? In all that time, he and I have never had a row. Actually, in truth, Gary has never had a row. He's profoundly deaf on his right side, so I just make sure I'm standing on that side when I let rip. Lastly, we have Lee Murrell who is our recently appointed curator, having understudied Gary for a year to learn the ropes. Lee came to us from the Imperial War Museum, and he is our hope for the future. He is the young blood who will take over the reins of the museum from my gnarled and lifeless hands when the time comes. In all seriousness, we developed a succession plan to make sure the incoming director has some semblance of knowledge about the challenges involved in running a small independent museum and the work ethic required to drive through the hard times and to be innovative about income generation. Lee was a real find in that he is a team player and has a boyish enthusiasm twinned with a can-do mentality. It is rare these days to find someone crazy enough to agree to work it is rare these days to find someone crazy enough to agree to work long hard hours to turn his hands to a plethora of non-curatorial tasks, to be cheerful in the face of some truly challenging situations, whilst making the tea for the rest of us. Most importantly, his arrival did wonders for the average age of the team. When you run a small team, the matter of team fit is incredibly important. There is no time available to waste on smoothing out squabbles within the team members. We were very fortunate to find that Lee slotted into our asylum with hardly a ripple, and we have found he's just as daft as we are. Perfect. I am the director of the museum, and it sounds trite, but I really mean it when I say that I consider it to be an honour and a privilege to have this job. In this museum. In this city. And to be in the service of Her Majesty. 
Long may it continue. So now you know everyone who works here. In future episodes, I'll tell you about our management committee and our board of trustees and how they contribute to keeping us operational. But for now, that's enough for you to be going on with. Although we are a small museum, we think big. We have been involved in some awesome projects that most people in their sane minds would never contemplate doing. These ideas usually stem from a conversation in a bar and went on to become massive projects, usually involving painful consequences. Just goes to prove that alcohol is dangerous for your health. The first of these projects was the concept of cycling the length of the British Isles to raise money for the museum. A sponsored cycle between Land's End and John O'Groats is no mean feat at the best of times, as it is some 874 miles in length. But it gets worse if you give the map to someone who thinks it would be a great idea to go via places that are important to the story of the guards, and by doing so, you add another 200 miles. Add to that having a pretty busy job running the museum, which allowed for scant training, it was a tall order. When we set off, my training had consisted of reading two cycling magazines and watching the Tour de France on television. To say the first two days of the journey were purgatory is an understatement. There were areas of our bodies, gentle listener, that couldn't even be touched with cotton wool. Stopping to recover was not an option either, as we'd all taken two weeks' holiday to get the job done, and overrunning was inconceivable. So we plugged away and made it to the end and raised a handsome sum of money, and returned to our desk in time to carry on with our duties, having cycled over a thousand miles repaired 14 punctures, slept in a variety of increasingly bizarre places and having been supported by some incredibly kind people. Would we do it again? Absolutely not. Next up was the idea of breathing life back into the scarlet and gold concerts that used to be held in the Festival Hall in London in the early 1970s. But this time to stage it in the iconic setting of the Royal Albert Hall. The museum enjoys a great relationship with the bands of the household division, who, God bless them, were more than willing to perform such a concert to raise money for us. So it was that in September 2010, so it was that in September 2010, I found myself nervously waiting in the wings of that iconic stage about to go on to open the show. Next to me stood a member of the Welsh Guards band, one Colour Sergeant Adrian Beckett, MBE. He was calling the show. For those of you not used to theatre production terminology, he was the guy who was giving all of the prompts to the directors of music conducting the bands, to the lighting operators, to the sound engineers, and to the pyrotechnics guys. He stood there with his laptop and his headphones and he looked at me. He turned away and tapped a few more keys, then looked at me again. He said, are you nervous? I said, yes, I am. He tapped a few more keys, then turned around and said, would you like some advice? There was I, a drowning man, and he was offering me a life belt. I said, oh, yes, please. He replied, don't fuck it up and push me out through the curtain to face five and a half thousand people. Best laxative known to man. Surprisingly, we are firm friends to this day, but on the night, mm, not so much. However, the biggest project, and the one closest to my heart, 
was the idea to create a lasting memorial to commemorate the outstanding bravery of the soldiers of the Brigade of Guards in the First World War. It came out of a conversation with two other gentlemen in June 2008. We were standing outside the museum, dressed in full morning dress, with a glass of champagne in our hands. See? Demon drink again. Having just been to watch Her Majesty's Birthday Parade, Trooping the Colour on Horse Guards Parade. One of the gentlemen, Nick van der Meliere, the Flemish government's diplomatic representative of London, said to me, Andrew, I love you like a brother and I love the guards, but this, he said, pointing at a very miserable pond that existed between the museum and the chapel, this, he said, is an eyesore and needs to go. And he was right. It was a dreadful sight and thick with pondweed. He said, you should take this away and replace it with a garden. I replied it was a great idea, but sadly the museum has no money, so it will just stay as an idea. Nick responded, what you need is an internationally acclaimed garden designer to design it for you for nothing. At which point he placed his arm around the shoulder of the other man who stood there, Pete Blancart, who just happened to be an internationally acclaimed garden designer, who faintly whispered, oh, all right then. That was when I realised very few people on this earth are able to say no to Nick van der Meliere. We chatted and soon realised that if you take away a large deep pond, you're left with a large deep hole, which needs to be backfilled in some way. It was then we had the light bulb moment of deciding to go to the 70 battlefield cemeteries in Flanders, where the Brigade of Guards fought and died in the Great War and we will bring back soil from there to form the new garden. An inspired idea. We thought it would be easy. Nay, not so. It took a further six and a half years to get the permissions all in place and to raise the money required. But it was a proud day on the 6th of November 2014 when Her Majesty the Queen, His Majesty the King of the Belgians, his Royal Highness Prince Philip and His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge came to formally open the garden. It had cost us nearly three quarters of a million pounds, but it was worth every penny. It stands there in quiet testimony to the selfless sacrifice of the 4,096 guardsmen, a generation of other young soldiers who gave their lives so that we could live as free men and women. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. The last thing I'm going to talk about this week is funding. I don't want you to go away thinking we have some bottomless pot of money into which we dip to fund these projects and to finance the running of the museum. It couldn't be further from the truth. We receive no grants from the state other than a small grant towards the salary of one of our members of staff and we get to occupy this site free of charge. Don't get me wrong, we're grateful for that but it doesn't make much of a dent in the £250,000 I need to raise each year just to keep operational and it makes no dent at all on any project costs we might have. We are a registered charity but as you know Raising money in the charitable sector is a tough furrow to plough in the current economic climate. So, perforce, 
we have been required to become very commercial in our outlook. It is fair to say that we have no shame these days. We are pretty much willing to do anything for money. We are gentlemen of a certain age and maybe not the prettiest, but we have even considered prostitution. But as Gary pointed out, it takes ages to count all that small change and it ruins the linings of your pockets. So, to save our suit trousers, we have developed a vibrant corporate entertainment business, hosting a variety of events in the museum. Anything from christenings to business dinners, and from product launches to networking events. We think the museum makes a very different backdrop for these type of events, and judging by the amount of repeat business we get, our customers think the same. We also have our VIP guided tours business, and we are very grateful to our partners in Noteworthy Travel, who bring us clients who want a deeper, more personal experience than just a tour of the galleries. These income streams, along with a visitor footfall revenue and a host of smaller initiatives, help us to keep body and soul together. Of the 130 plus military museums in the country, only nine operate in profit. We are one of the nine. Only just, but it's better than being in the red. So that's us. You've heard about our background, and you've heard about our people, and what we're trying to achieve. You've heard, I hope, that we are passionate about this fantastic museum, this repository of inspiring and poignant reminders of soldiers who have gone before, having made the ultimate sacrifice for us. You will have gleaned by now that we are all slightly mad here and probably shouldn't be playing with sharp objects or being left near alcohol. You'll have heard that we should perhaps stop having team meetings in bars as it usually leads to pain downstream. What I do hope is that you have heard that we love this place and we want you to start loving it too. In future episodes, I will take you on a tour of the museum galleries and will describe for you some of the artefacts that we have and we'll share with you the stories behind them. Interspersed with the tour, I will also share with you some poetry and prose which, for me, sum up the history of these great regiments. I was brought up with these tales, and I really hope you enjoy hearing them. If the coronavirus has done nothing else, it has made me get off my butt to start this podcast. Please let your friends know about it. Please share details about it. And please let me know I'm not just talking to myself, because you can get locked up in an asylum for that. Our email address couldn't be simpler. It's guardsmuseum, or one word, at aol.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Should you wish to support the work that we do, please log on to our website, www.theguardsmuseum.com, and look for the support button. Alternatively, you can go straight to our donation page at www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. Once again, that's www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. I am Andrew Wallace, and this has been the first episode of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. See you next time. Actually, I won't see you, because it's a podcast.
hear you next time. No, even that's wrong. You'll hear me next time, I hope. Goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down, and get away.